Awesome. Hey, how are you doing, church? Good to see you this morning. Is it too early to say Merry Christmas? Ever? Well, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Easter, Happy Birthday. <laughs> we're going to be unpacking the Christmas story over the next month, and um, we're going to look at some encouraging things from what we might you know, perceive as a familiar story that we all know uh, and are familiar with. And so over the next month, we're going to be unpacking that a little bit. And so today we start our sermon series called Christmas at Elam. Uh, but you can go on ahead and take your Bibles out, take your Bible apps out. Uh, we're going to go straight to the Word. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child, Jesus and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. God bless the reading of his word this morning. I want to preach on the topic, the gift that keeps on giving. The gift that keeps on giving. Who in here loves gifts? Nice. We all love gifts, or most of us. There is absolutely nothing quite like unwrapping gifts on Christmas Day or on your birthday. That moment where you start to unwrap your gift, you carefully untie the ribbon, you start to tear open the wrapping paper, heart is racing with excitement, you continue to unwrap the gift, you catch a glimpse of what's inside this gift, your eyes just light up with excitement and amazement and wonder just feeling, the feeling of unwrapping presents on Christmas Day is indescribable. It's like a mix of curiosity and thrill just filling every inch of your being. And so you eagerly tear through the wrapping paper, hoping to uncover something delightful. You continue unwrapping until you find a box. And so you open the box and nested inside is another box. And so you open that box and then inside that box is another box. You open that box and you find another box. And so as you open each layer, your curiosity grows. 
you start to wonder what lies at the core. Your attention has been captivated and you get to the last box, you open and you find the keys to a brand new car. Wow. Or you find the keys to a brand new home. Or, or you find an engagement ring. Or you find a ticket to fly to your favorite place in the world. Or you find a lifetime, lifetime membership to the gym. Whatever, whatever the gift may be, there are some gifts that just leave us absolutely puzzled until we have fully unwrapped them. Oftentimes when we look at scripture, it can seem a little bit like unwrapping a gift. These multiple layers to it. And so we don't really fully understand what an obscure portion of scripture might be saying until it's fully unwrapped. Sometimes when we engage the scriptures and we interrogate scripture and we ask what could it possibly mean, it can be quite puzzling. And so it's not until we get to later chapters and later books of the Bible that we suddenly realize that the part that we read over here and it's got us puzzled and the brows raised and confused suddenly makes sense when we get to this part over here because we've been able to unwrap more of its meaning, more of the author's intent, more of the story. And so as we engage in hermeneutics, as we attempt to interpret the Word of God, one of the many basic principles of interpreting God's Word is Scripture, whereby Scripture interprets Scripture. You would have heard Haley mention this in her sermon a few times. Scripture interprets Scripture. Nothing else does a better job at explaining Scripture than Scripture itself. And so if we want to understand the meaning of a particular passage in one part of Scripture, we ought to go looking for it in another part of Scripture, pay attention to what's happening there to get an understanding of the, that particular portion of Scripture. You will find that what seems implicit over here suddenly becomes explicit over here. What seems cloudy in the Old Testament suddenly becomes clear in the New Testament because Scripture interprets Scripture. It is that method of interpretation that I would like you to bear in mind as we unpack the Word this morning. In our text, many scholars of the Word believe that Matthew's Gospel, the text that we've read today, would have to be one of the New Testament books that quotes the Old Testament the most. In our text this morning, Matthew quotes three times from the Old Testament. And each of these times, he says, so that the words of the prophets would be fulfilled. Now, when you read some of these quotations, you could be like, what on earth is Matthew talking about? What, what, what is he talking about? And so for each of these quotes, the Old Testament context is important for us to understand what Matthew was trying to say. And so we're going to unpack three of those prophecies that he quotes in the New Testament. Matthew 2, verse 14 to 15 says, When he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child, Jesus, and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. In this portion of Scripture, Matthew was quoting the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in Hosea chapter 11, the prophet Hosea is talking about how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. 
In the book of Exodus, we read of how God used 10 miraculous plagues in order to deliver the people of Israel from slavery and bondage. And so we read that there, were, there was water turning to blood. There were frogs. There were gnats. There were flies. There, the livestock went off. There were boils. There was hail. There were locusts. And there was darkness that covered Egypt. And we get to plague number 10, and it's here where we are introduced to this thing called the Passover. It's in this 10th plague and final plague where the Lord strikes down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. However, for his people, God gives them a way to escape the plague of death. And so he gives instructions for every single one of the Israelites to put the blood of an unblemished lamb on the doorposts. The Bible says that when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he would see the blood on the, on the doorposts and would pass over the home. He would not allow the destroyer to enter the home or strike anyone down. And so God gives his people this gift of gracious deliverance. And so they unwrap this gift. And they continue to unwrap this gift all the way to Exodus chapter 14, whereby God fully and finally saves his people from the hands of Egyptians at the Red Sea. But even then, the gift of gracious deliverance continues to keep on giving. Because the people of God continue to unwrap the gift from Exodus through to Leviticus the people of Israel would turn away from God. God would hand them over to their enemies. The people would repent from their sins, turn back to God, and God would deliver them again. And so the people of God through, uh, go through the cycle of constantly unwrapping this gift of gracious deliverance, whereby God would deliver them. And so they're unwrapping the gift in Numbers. They're unwrapping the gift in Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy through to Joshua, they're unwrapping the gift in Joshua, in Esther, in Ruth, in Judges, in Esther, all the way down to Psalms. And then they get to Hosea and the prophet Hosea speaks the word of the Lord and says, and out of Egypt, I called my son. But the Bible says that the people don't listen to Hosea. They don't heed Hosea's warnings. And so the people turn away from God again. They disobey God. They leave God behind. But God, somebody say, but God. But God continues to show love towards a people who don't even care nothing about him. And so he continues to extend this gift of gracious deliverance. And the people of God continue to unwrap this precious gift. They unwrap it through the prophet Joel. They unwrap it through the prophet Amos. They're unwrapping it in Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi. And so they get to Matthew. And when Matthew writes his gospel and starts talking about Joseph taking the young child and his mother departing for Egypt, when Matthew pens that they stayed in Egypt until Herod died, when Matthew takes the moment to write down about Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt. This was more than just merely running away from Herod. Matthew was painting a bigger picture for us to see. In the Old Testament, we see that God saves his people by graciously delivering them from Egypt. The people of God recount their deliverance story. Every year they would tell this, the events of the Exodus. They would tell it to their children and their children's children. God delivered his people. And this was a picture of what was to come in the New Testament. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus inaugurates a new Exodus. That in the same way that the people of God in Exodus were delivered from Egypt, 
Uh, Matthew wants us to know that there is also a delivering of a people from bondage and slavery that is happening with the birth of Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that there is a freeing and a liberating of a bound people that is going to happen because of the birth of Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that God is saving his people by bringing the Messiah, the one who will deliver, and he's bringing him out of Egypt. Can you see how this gift of God's gracious deliverance that the people have been unwrapping since Exodus is the gift that just keeps on giving? You see, it didn't just give in Exodus. No, it's giving in Matthew now. And so when Matthew was quoting Hosea, he is letting the people know that this gift of God's gracious deliverance is a person and his name is Jesus. And the arrival of Jesus brings a new exodus. The arrival of Jesus brings a new deliverance. The arrival of Jesus brings a new liberating. Just as God delivered his people from the Egyptians in the Old Testament, so now he was delivering his people from sin in the New Testament. Just as Israel was God's son brought out of Egypt, so now Jesus as God's son was brought out of Egypt. The second passage that Matthew quotes from the Old Testament is it's in Matthew chapter 2 16 to 18 then Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying a voice was heard in Ramah lamentation weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping Weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 right after King Herod kills uh, all of the infant boys in Bethlehem. The prophet Jeremiah is talking about the time when the people of God were taken into exile. The Babylonian people came, they attacked Jerusalem, they completely destroyed people's homes, they destroyed cities, and they took all of the people to a place called Ramah, just north of Jerusalem. Now at Ramah, the people were put into caravans. They were scattered apart from one another. I can imagine that this would have been a scene of absolutely unimaginable anguish. Imagine that for a moment, being taken to a place where you are separated from your family, separated from your friends, and the overwhelming thought is that there's every chance you just may not ever see them again. Imagine all of the weeping, imagine all of the crying, imagine all of the loud lamenting that would sweep through the land as families are being torn apart. This is the kind of weeping and crying over children that Matthew refers to when he begins to describe what just happened in Bethlehem, where King Herod has put out a notice to kill all of the male children who were two years old and under in Bethlehem. Can you imagine how puzzled the people of God would have been at the time to finally feel like they've been delivered only to be taken into bondage again? To be unwrapping this gift, seeking hope in the midst of hopelessness, only to find another box of who knows what. 
You see, I don't think it's an accident that Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah says something deeply significant right after all of the mourning and the weeping. Here's what he says, Jeremiah 31, 15 to 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Jeremiah is letting the people of God know that God has not forgotten about them. In fact, God is going to initiate a new relationship with them, a new covenant with them. God was going to unite his people together around this particular covenant. And so when Matthew quotes Jeremiah, it's as if he's saying that even amidst the bitter tragedy of Bethlehem, amidst the pain, amidst the hurt, amidst the sorrow, amidst what seems to be mournful exile, there is hope for their future and the hope is here. Matthew is letting us know that hope has come. That this gift of hope that mankind has been unwrapping since the fall of man is here. That Jesus has come. Matthew is letting us know that Jesus brings an end to mournful exile. Jesus ends mournful exile. And we see this in the clear contrast of Matthew chapter 2. On one hand, there is horrible news. Children are dying. Mothers are mourning and weeping. And on the other hand, there is hope in the midst of all the hurt, that there is life in the midst of death. And you might ask me today, how could there be hope in death? How could there be hope in the midst of pain and hurt? What is this hope? What is this life? And Matthew would say to you today, a new king is born a king who will conquer death, a king who will heal our hurts, a king who will re reconcile us to God, a king whose arrival means that a new covenant is beginning. Matthew is letting us know that Jesus brings hope in the midst of hurt. Matthew is letting us know that Jesus brings life in the midst of death. The third quote is in Matthew 3.23. Here's what it says. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you were to do a particular study on this verse and try to figure out where, you know, Matthew was quoting from, you will find that he's not quoting from anywhere. <laughs> None of the prophets specifically say that Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. In fact, the prophets don't even talk about Nazareth as a place at all. And so it can be quite confusing as to why is Matthew saying what he's saying here in the passage. And so as you study the Gospels, you will learn that Nazareth was not, uh, was not a great place. Nazareth was not really, it wasn't really a well-respected place at all. It was at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale in Bible times. In John's Gospel, a guy named Nathaniel hears that Jesus was from Nazareth and he responds and says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? People who come from Nazareth were scorned. They were hated on. They were despised. And many scholars of the word believe that it is this idea of scorn and hate and despise that Matthew is saying what that the prophets often talked about. We see this in Isaiah 53. It says, he was despised and rejected. We didn't value him. And so the idea is not that the prophet said Jesus was gonna be a Nazarene, but that he would be scorned. 
They're saying that he would be despised. He would be hated just like them in the same way that society looked down on anyone from Nazareth. Matthew was letting us know that this gift that mankind has been unwrapping for years has come and is going to be rejected by the world. He's going to be scorned. He's going to be hated. He's going to be despised. Matthew was letting us know that the king of the universe has come to save sinners and he's going to be defied and derided by the very sinners that he came to save. Matthew was letting us know that Jesus has come to love even his fiercest enemies. Jesus loves his enemies. Whether it's Herod, whether it's the chief priests, the Pharisees or the scribes, they're all setting themselves up against Jesus as his enemies. And the reality is we do the exact same thing. We set ourselves up against Jesus as his enemies. In most of the Bible stories that we love, you've got a good guy and then you've got a bad guy. And of course, we always love to just identify ourselves with the good guy. Stories like David and Goliath, Cain and Abel, Pharaoh and Moses, Delilah and Samson, Esau and Jacob. In the same way, our passage this morning also has some good and bad guys. You've got the good guys, the wise men, Joseph and Mary. And then you've got the bad guys, King Herod and the Jewish religious leaders. And the question I have for you today is, whom do you identify with more? If we're really honest with ourselves, we'd say that at the core, we probably identify with the King Herod. Instead of bowing down in total surrender before the king, we're afraid of how Jesus is going to invade our kingdom. We're afraid of how he's going to invade our lives. We're afraid of how he's going to invade our plans, invade our desires. And so we set ourselves up as enemies to him. In our hearts and in our minds, we choose to reject him. This is the core of what it means to be a sinner. And this is precisely whom Jesus has come to save. Jesus loves even his fiercest enemies. If I can ask Daniel to join me on the keys, please. And so Matthew was letting us know that in Jesus, the story of Scripture finds its fulfillment. Matthew was letting us know that Jesus has come to bring a new exodus. He's letting us know that Jesus has come to end mournful exile. Matthew was letting us know that Jesus has come to love us in all of our sinful rebellion. You see, you need to understand that Christ himself is God making himself a gift to us. That God all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-holy would tether himself to the womb of a virgin. God who carved the edges of the cosmos and yet would curve himself into a fetal ball in the dark. God who gave up the heavens that were not even big enough to contain him and yet lets himself be held with hands. God who dwells in eternity and yet would step into time all wrapped up in humanity. God who is a mystery so large and yet 
becomes the baby so small. God who is infinite and yet would become an infant. God, the giver, becoming the gift. A gift that we're still unwrapping 2,000 years later. A gift to a dying world. A gift that got the choirs of heaven singing and angels rejoicing. A gift that God had already prepared for you before the foundations of the earth was laid. A gift that embraces your past, your present and your future. A gift that doesn't have your history in mind, but your destiny in mind. A gift that keeps on giving. You see, the gift that keeps on giving is used to describe a gift that continually evokes joy or happiness or peace. It implies that any present that gives enjoyment over and over, you know, for example, a radio or camera, a magazine subscription, that those gifts are so much better than a gift that only provides a feeling once, like a bouquet, bouquet of flowers. And so in the same way, Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. And let me tell you this morning, He's a gift that gives unto eternity. The Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Knowing that God has made Himself a gift to you, let me ask you, who are you a gift to? Who are you a gift to? If you follow Jesus, that means that you're Christ-like. So you're bound to be a gift to somebody in your job or in your school or in your neighborhood or at the supermarket. If God made himself a gift, then surely the people who worship him must make themselves a gift to somebody every day. <laughs> Wrapping yourself up in forms beyond your normal purview and giving yourself to serve someone else, to share Jesus with someone else. You know, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew continues to quote the Old Testament and as you read through Matthew, you start to find that there is this pattern of promise and fulfillment. Promise, fulfillment. Promise, fulfillment. And this pattern begins to unfold. And one of the ways that you can see this happen through Matthew's writing is his use of titles that have their root in the Old Testament. For example, he calls Jesus Messiah. He calls him King. He calls him the Son of God, Son of David, Emmanuel. All of these titles... They point to the theme of fulfillment, but they're all derived from the Old Testament. And so we find that the promises of God as revealed in Scripture to bring salvation to His people Israel and to the entire world are being fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. And as we read Matthew's Gospel, it can be so easy for us to respond by distancing ourselves from the story. It can be easy for us to respond to the story by treating Matthew's gospel merely as just a recount of events that happened. It can be easy for us to respond by looking at Matthew's gospel as just a compilation of stories that are only limited in application to a particular dispensation. But the response of the church upon unwrapping this gift so great, upon coming to the realization that the promises of Scripture that Matthew talks about ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus, the response of the church is this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Our response is to go and make disciples. In other words, there's another gift that keeps on giving. And that gift is you. To every person who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to every person who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus, to every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, to every person who has taken up the Great Commission, the gift that keeps on giving is you. Not because of you, not because of what you do, not because of where you come from, but because of the Christ who lives in you. Imagine what our homes would be like if we were to go and make disciples. Imagine what Manurewa would be like if we were to go and make disciples. Imagine what Auckland would be like if we were to go and make disciples. Man, imagine what New Zealand would be like if we were to go and make disciples. My prayer this morning is that the people of Elam Manurewa would be a people known for their response to go and make disciples. Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. And because he lives inside of you, you too are the gift that keeps on giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus to be your savior, maybe you've walked away from God or maybe you're far away from God. Your life could be a mess right now. You might be living in sin. You might be feeling too far gone to be saved. You might be on crack. You might have gotten into some beef on your way here to church. I came to tell you that this gift of salvation, the gift of hope that all of humanity has been trying to unwrap since the beginning of time has revealed itself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus has come. He has given his life for you. He has shed his blood and hung on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for you. He has risen from the grave to bring eternal life to every single person who believes them. And the Bible says that whosoever believes them will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you're here today and you're saying, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to make him the Lord of my life. I'm going to count to three and I want you to lift your hands and you can put it down straight away. Listen, you don't have to be shy. No one in this church was born holy. We are all sinners who've been saved by grace. So if that's you today and you're saying, yeah, I'm giving my heart to Jesus. I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand. You can put it down straight away. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to your heart right now. Three, lift your hand. Thank you, bro. Thank you in the back there. Thank you. There's one more thing I want you to do for me. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. I need you to know this prayer doesn't even save you. Jesus Christ saves you. This prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith and your hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and you rose again. Today, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you. I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's put our hands together. Celebrate everyone that's made that decision.